morning. Um, it's a privilege, uh, indeed, a genuine privilege to uh, join with you guys this morning as we gather around the Scriptures, and uh, in particular, uh, to be able to gather together with uh, you, who we consider uh, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, and uh, I bring greetings uh, from our church. Um, you know, um, we love to hear the good things that, uh, that occur here at Cornerstone. It's an encouragement to us, and uh, our, your participation in the Gospel, I mean, it means a lot to us. So uh, if I am moved, then uh, you excuse me. Uh, but uh, you guys are uh, indeed precious souls to us, and your church uh, uh, matters to us greatly. And we, we just, uh, I just want to appreciate you that way. Well, this morning we're looking at a um, particular text in the book of Hebrews, and um, and I, the reason why I chose that was because, uh, to be honest, you know, I think every preacher has his sugar sticks. This is not one of them. You know, you just read the text, you know, and you you understand it. It's not an easy text to go through, but it's one that, that I delight in, that I think is uh, significant, and I think uh, something that might bless you. In fact, um, uh, I think it's been years since I've been in the book of Hebrews, and this particular portion of Scripture, I think I took uh, two or three different uh, sermons to get through. So I'll squeeze all that into our 80 minutes together this morning. <laughs> no, I know, I'm only supposed to go like 20 or something, huh? No, um, um, we'll be in the text for a little bit, and uh, and hopefully you'll hang in there with me. Uh, I am so sorry that my wife Kathy um, was not able to join us with you, uh, join us together to be with you guys. Um, she is by far my better half, and uh, you would have uh, greatly enjoyed uh, being able to have the privilege of meeting her, as I have had the privilege of knowing her. Um, uh, yesterday was our 11th year of marriage, and so uh, what a blessing uh, she has been to me, as well as for Chloe. Little Chloe, I don't know if it's appropriate to say something like this in the pulpit, but I'll tell you, she's, she's ill and uh, she's been having diarrhea, you know? I know, I know. Not too many preachers bold enough to say diarrhea from the pulpit, but it's true. And, uh, and uh, I was up, you know, ministering to her once at midnight, once at 2.30, once at 5.30, and oh man, so if I am not as uh, energetic as uh, I ought to be for your sakes, I am sorry. But, uh, hey, listen, it's not my energy that will convict you. It's the Word of God. So get over it, please. All right. Well, let's uh, come to the text. We've read it already, which will kind of uh, hopefully whet your appetites for what we encounter here in the Word of God. But let's ask that the Lord now would uh, send His Holy Spirit to illuminate the Scriptures to us that it might bear fruit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You in in, in genuine humility. We thank You. We thank You for... um, uh, just even the words that we're able to sing this morning in praise to you. Indeed, you are the, 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 the three times holy God. And as we come before you, and we even heard uh, Monica's testimony, how that ministers to our hearts, Lord, um, to remember even our own salvation and what you have done. Well, Lord, may that be the basis by which we approach this particular portion of Scripture now. And may your Holy Spirit, may He take the Word of God and make it profitable unto us. Lord, uh, there's many things that might hinder us in the flesh today. Uh, Maybe anxieties of the heart, maybe uh, different distractions, maybe even fatigue. But let those not stand in the way of your your perfect work and taking your wonderful word and uh, and, uh, illuminating us, Lord, making us understand what you would have us to do as a result of it. We thank you for our Redeemer. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for all that he means to us. And may we never get over... Lord, what it means that He is indeed uh, the final sacrifice, the Lamb which was slain, 
that we might have access to the living God. Lord, I pray that you would work that into our hearts, that you would make us understand that and help us not to easily walk away from the things of the genuine virtue um, of the delight of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So, Lord, may this time be a consecration of our hearts and may it be a worshipful time as we gather around the Scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, um, if there is a, a centerpiece or a theme to the book of Hebrews, I think it is uh, the superiority of Christ. In fact, uh, I would argue with you that of all the New Testament books, there is not a book right, or a letter in the New Testament that is so Christocentric as the book of Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews in some ways is kind of like an entire Christology right, given to us for application. And you think about the argument of Hebrews, the first few verses start out, hey, there have been different portions, different ways, all these different you know, things that God has given us in terms of revelation. He's spoken through different types of people, through prophets, all these different means. And now the revelation is given to us in full body, right, in the Son. The entire book is about Jesus Christ. There's no question. The particular portion of Scripture that we look at this morning in chapter 10, verse 19 uh, through 25, I think um, if Jesus Christ is the centerpiece, the main picture, right, that the author of Hebrews is writing to, then this, I think, is one of the absolute applications that is for any believer that calls upon the name of Jesus Christ with an attitude of hope. In other words, anyone in this room, if you are convinced that Jesus Christ and that, ma- that name means something to you so that you would call yourself little, little Christ, you know, Christian. If his name means something to you, this text speaks to you and speaks to you boldly. And like I said, it's not one of these, you know, easy to preach kind of fun, you know, if I need an easy to preach kind of fun, I, I go to James. You know, not, not, not James. I could go to James. He would do a great job. But I go to James. The book of James gives so many wonderful, fun illustrations, you know, things like getting ambushed by your problems and this and that, right? You know, and it's wonderful. But this, this is theology, but it is theology for our hearts. It's theology for our hearts. And, we, and, the, and the concept that is conveyed to us here um, is the idea of courage, uh, the idea of courage or confidence. And when we look at this, this, this theme of courage and confidence, um, you see there, even as we've read through it, that at least in the first three verses, there is kind of the setting or the background or the basis of our confidence. In other words, what is it that we have confidence in? And then the rest of it, you see that there's three exhortations, right? There is that, let us draw near. There is that, let us hold fast. There is that, let us consider. And so there you go. Here's an easy outline for us. But the meat of which, I think, um, is quite remarkable. Um, it is about our courage and what that courage ought to result in. In other words, why should we be courageous? And what do we do with such courage or confidence? And that is the issue that is put before us. I love to talk about things like courage. I'm a, I'm a guy. I mean, uh, um, James was sharing about um, Pastor Montoya. And how, um, uh, you know, he's a wonderful guy and he's a man's man. And uh, the fact that he watches Monday Night Football with his wife, that's a blessing to my heart. I, I was almost weeping, you know. I was like, oh, amen, Lord. What? Yeah, I, I understand. That's, that's me. I mean, I love kind of, you know, these kind of masculine things. My favorite guys in the scriptures are these guys that are just, 
You know, they're brazen. They're brave and courageous. And you guys too, I'm sure. I mean, when, when, when we talk about courage, and, and you say, well, can you give me some examples? I was like, are you kidding me? Of course I can give you examples of Scripture, right? I mean, there are so many guys, and, and guys that maybe don't pop up to your mind immediately. You know, okay, there's the David, you know, with the Goliath thing. But come on, you know, we all know that. But how about his friend Jonathan? You guys remember that story where Jonathan kind of goes and says to a shield bearer, hey, let's go to the Philistines' camp, and let's just kind of hang out. And they see us, and they say, hey, come up here. You know, we want, we want to do something, right? Then I'll know the Lord has delivered them into my hands. Now, you know, I don't know the process by which he decides that that's how God's going to deliver, you know, a, an encampment of the enemy into his hands. There was a time in Israel where, you know, the only two guys that had swords, apparently, were Jonathan, because he's the king's son and the king. And so he goes and they go, hey, come up here. We want to talk to you about something, right? It's kind of funny the way that they kind of... Appro- and he goes, really? And it's just they crawl up on hands and knees to get up there, and he's like, all right, Shilba, are you ready? Because the Lord's delivered them, and he has this slaughter of uh, this encampment in the Philistines. And you go, man, what a warrior. Out of David's mighty men. I'm taking too long in just the, the introduction of all this stuff. I apologize. See, now we're going to go 90 minutes, but that's all right, all right? We'll be, we'll be back to it, right? But how about David's mighty men? Have you ever read the listing of them? They were mighty. Benaniah, one of my personal favorites. You never heard of him, you say? This guy jumped into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Why? I have no idea. <laughs> that is a man. Right? There is a lion. It's snowing. <laughs> right? What a man. On and on and on we can go through the heroes of faith and all the things that they have accomplished because of their courage. You know... It is difficult for us because um, uh, it, it may be a concept that's foreign to you, but our fear and our timidity are actually results of our own fleshliness. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you appreciate that? I hope you do. And as we look at this portion of the text, especially this first section in verse 19 through 21, I hope to dispel this confidence or this desire to be confident in our own flesh. Do I get nervous? People all in my, my, my congregation will always ask me, hey, when you go to other places, do you get nervous before you preach? I say, yes, absolutely, because of my sin, right? And then as I am in that, in that place, sitting and going, why should I have a right to share the Word of God with these people? Then I confess my sin and I say, Lord, is it really about me or is it about your Word? And if it's about the Word of God, then let those kind of shaken lacking in faith, lacking in confidence, and worried about myself, things pass. And let us get back to the business of teaching the Word of God. It is about courage that that we come together, and it is about courage that we find in a singular individual, that person that we cherish so dearly, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's take a look at this first section then. I've taken too long and too much of your precious time. But verse 19 says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he has inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a high, we have a great priest, sorry, over the house of God. And then he goes on to say, Then let us, let us, let us. Right? The sense part is that we have confidence. And the basis of our Christian confidence is given to us pretty explicitly in verse 19 and 20 um, and 21. All right? 
uh, this idea of confidence is a, is, a, is, a, is a curious Greek word. It means to have boldness. It's often uh, referred to that way. But it's used especially in the context of speech. In, in fact, it, uh, um, you know, some of the lexicons will say that it means to have an unreserved m- manner of speaking. A freedom to speak as is in your heart. I would say that on the one hand, it's courageous in the sense in which we have confidence to say whatever we want to say about the things of the Lord. But at the same time, it is confidence in the sense of its familial certainty. If you understand what I'm saying by that, it's like saying we as a family gather together and we could talk boldly to each other. I would suggest that you talk more boldly to the people in your family than to anyone else that you have ever met. Because there's that familial, there's that excellent rapport that you have with them. And that is that he's saying, since then, brethren, we have this courage, this confidence that is almost familial. It's like we know, we know better and we know each other and we can speak to each other. If it was more colloquial, I think it would be something like, hey, can we talk? Of course we can talk. And it's that kind of confidence that we have. But see, here this confidence is not so much directed towards speech as would be normally the case in this word, but it is a confidence, as courage, to enter the holy place. Okay, see, now this can be an excursion all by itself. The holy place being referred to here, um, if, you, if you recall, um, the author of Hebrews is, is addressing so many wonderful Old Testament themes, the old sanctuary, the old covenant, and how those things are all gone in Christ because he is better than those things. And when he says that we can enter the holy place, that is an intensely wonderful statement for us. See, it's, if we're reading this portion of scripture, and, and I, I say we, let me say me so I don't, I don't implicate you in any of my sin. But if I'm reading this portion of Scripture, just in my, in my morning, uh, you know, reading a Scripture time, I probably read, well, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence in the holy place, blah, 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 blah. And you just kind of ramble through, and you think, oh, we can go into the holy place. Are you kidding me? Do you know what it means to go into the holy place? I'll describe it to you, in case you don't. All right? It began with the tabernacle and the construction of the tabernacle, which later would become the actual temple. And in both of those structures, there was a singular place that no one ever entered. You guys know that, right? They call it the holiest. They call it the holy place. Emphasis on the, right? Um, Or they call it the holy of holies. There was this veil, very heavy veil. There's all this description in Leviticus how the veil is to be made that kept everyone out of the holy place. And what was this, you know, makes you curious, right? If you were there, Lord, I'm curious, what's behind the veil? You know, what is so exciting? It was the very presence of God. In fact, um, in this, uh, uh, whether in the, in the wilderness travels, right, where God's Shekinah glory came down into the tent of meeting, entered into that holy place, um, or later on in the consecration of the first temple, God's very presence comes to fill that holy place. It is the presence of God that we're speaking about. Who gets to enter into the presence of God? Well, if you've been listening, nobody, right? No one gets to enter into the presence of God. So when the author of Hebrews would have the audacity to speak to Hebrews, these are Hebrew Christians. Listen, I am Korean, you know, uh, by ethnicity. Um, 
If I could choose, I wouldn't choose to be Korean. That's not to knock all, all you wonderful Korean brothers and sisters. I, I forgive me for, for knocking. You know, I, I love Korean food. But if I could choose, I would choose to be Jewish. Wouldn't you? I know you would. Because I would. If you wouldn't, the shame on you. You know, join, right? I, mean, I would choose to be Jewish. The heritage, they're God's people. What a blessing. If I can be Jewish just for free, I, I would be Scottish. Because all oh, the great preachers are Scottish, man. I wish I had a Scottish accent. Well, coming back to this, the more important thing. Um, yeah, I would choose to be Jewish because look at the rich heritage. And if you talk to an Old Testament Jew, right? And you said, hey, guess what? Um, the Messiah, you know one of the blessings of the Messiah for you is? He's going to let you into the holy place. You go, what? Are you stupid? you got to talk about the holy. That's profane. Right? We, we sang this morning one of those great concepts that come from, from Scripture um, in Isaiah 6, right? The, the cherubim singing around the throne, holy, holy, holy. You, you know why that's so significant? You know, you say, well, big deal, three times holy. Three times holy. No, no, that's a huge deal. Yeah, in the Hebrew, um, a lot of times, when you try to emphasize something, you repeat it. I'll give you probably the best example I can give you, and off the top of my head, I'm not that smart, I don't remember the exact Hebrew. I know it's muth, because that's you know, the word for death. But remember when God says to Adam, he says, he says hey, listen, don't eat from this fruit, because if you do, you will surely die. That's how our English translates it, right? You will certainly, or you're absolutely, you're, you're dead, right? Well, in the Hebrew, it's the repeating of the verb to die and death. In, in other words, you're just repeating the word. You know, in dying, you will die. That's literally how transliterated it would come out to us. Right? And that establishes that you will absolutely die. So can you imagine if you wanted to emphasize, not only will you die certainly, but in the most absolute scale, you might say it in the triplet. Right? In dying, you will be killing yourself dying and it would mean more than certainty. And that's what we say when we say that God is holy. And He is certainly holy, if you say it twice. And He is not just certainly, but He is in the absolutest, the greatest, the most elitist. And I'm making up words. I'm running out of stuff. He is the holiest. Right? It is an incredible statement. So can we easily, confidently, with familial kind of association, kind of go, here I am, Lord. I'm walking in behind the veil, and here I am to be in your presence. The audacity. And any Hebrew, any Jewish individual hearing that would understand, wait, wait, is that true? That's not possible, is it? But it is because it tells us the means by which that is accomplished. Look at the rest of verse 19. By the blood of Jesus. His sacrifice on the cross is not, it, it, let me be careful how I say that, um, is not only, right, the propitiation, the full payment of our sins. See, now, I've got to be very careful. Make sure you don't misquote me on that. I sound like such a heretic, right? It, it is not, and I don't want to say merely, it's not, you know, that is the greatest benefit that we have, that we might have our sins forgiven of us. Because He pays the price of our sins in full. Substitutionary atonement. He dies our death. And anybody that sells you a form of forgiveness that is a symbolic death, He kind of did it you know, as a symbolic act. Foolishness. He died your death. He paid your very particular sins. Full payment. But in doing that, 
according to the author of Hebrews, he accomplishes something even greater than, again, I want to use the word mere, be careful with that, mere forgiveness. He grants to us access unto the limitless holiness of God the Father. In other words, well, let me let the text explain it to you. By the blood or the death of Jesus, and then look at how verse 20 plays that out for us. By a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil. Now, when He uses this term, new, it's a very peculiar term. It's not our common term in the New Testament for new. It is a word that originally in classical Greek meant freshly killed. And it, it was something that was used particularly for sacrifices. It's freshly killed. And this is how precise the author of Hebrews is in the construction of his argument. He says this. He says, you know, we have access, and not only access, but we have courageous, confident, familial access to the holiness of God by a fresh sacrifice. A term that later became just kind of used for something that is fresh or new, or, you know, exciting, or, yeah, or something, right? And, and it's this idea that, that He inaugurated for us, He opened a new, right, through sacrifice, and yet a living way in which we might enter into the presence of God. Um, it says that He did that through the veil that is His flesh. Now, what is this idea of the veil and the flesh? Well, you guys remember um, at the death of Jesus in Matthew 27, verse 50 and 51, that at the moment that he, uh, he yielded up his spirit, it records for us that the, you know, the temple was still there, remember? And that huge, heavy curtain, the Holy of Holies, that, that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest, it was rent, it was torn from top to bottom, right? And you say, well, what was that about? And why is he mentioning that Christ in his death Right? Has kind of, you know, he enters in through the veil that is his flesh. What, he, what, it, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he is saying, see, it was an inauguration of a new covenant, of a new relationship. It's not ceremonial. We don't hang around. I've noticed none of you guys have brought your sacrificial goats this morning. Right? We don't do that anymore. But why don't we? Because his flesh. Because His death inaugurates for us a freshly killed manner in which we might approach absolute holiness. I said that no one gets to go into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And I, I would take that back only in that one exception once a year. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, after going through a series of cleansings, after sacrifices for himself, he would take the blood and he would go behind the veil and he'd sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and he'd come out and he'd go about the task of, um, of doing so many sacrifices through that day. Um, he got to go in, but he had to be very careful. Tradition holds that, you know, that they would tie a rope around one of his ankles, right? Because he might fall down dead. Are you still in there, Eli? Hello? You're going to just pull that guy out. Is it a dangerous thing to go into the presence of the Holy God? Of course. And can you imagine that that's exactly what we have in him? We don't even have time to explore the new covenant. But that's what we're talking about. That the veil is rent so that we enter into this new covenant relationship with the living God. And that new covenant, covenant, we know some of the realities of that. Particularly, it's for Israel and be revealed to us in fullness in, in the history of God's program. But for us in the church age, we enjoy the benefits of that. 
And think about some of the things that the New Covenant teaches us. What does it mean that you're a child of God now? Well, it means that God is, according to Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel 36, right? He's taken out your heart of stone and He's given your heart of flesh. He has internalized the Word of God unto you. He has blown His Holy Spirit upon you and into you. We are spirit indwelt. We are heart transformed. We experience something that the Old Testament saints sitting in heaven must be looking and going, Man, I didn't get that stuff. David is praying, right? When he's making his great confession of his sin with Bathsheba. He is praying, God, do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Meaning, you know, the guidance of your anointing Holy Spirit upon me. You know, David was, you know, David was undefeated. Going back to heroes of faith, you know, he had never lost a single battle. Ever. Why? Because the power of the Holy Spirit upon him. And he's saying, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Would we pray that today? Of course not. Because the Holy Spirit permanently indwells us. Why? Well, here it is, because Jesus Christ sacrificed for us and inaugurated for us a new way, a living way, and a brand new covenant relationship with Him. We can pray to our God. We can approach our God. We can even call Him Father. You know, I'm telling you, the Old Testament saints must have flipped their lid. You know, when Jesus says, hey, pray in such a way, our Heavenly Father, and they go, Abba? You're going to be calling God Abba? You're going to call Him, you know, Appa? You know, if you're Korean, or, or, or Papa? Or, you know, and then, you can't just treat Him like He's that familiar and near to you. See, that's exactly what we have in Christ, our access to God that is so remarkable in the New Covenant. It's inexpressible. And if I've done a poor job to explain that to you, I'm sorry, but let the Word of God teach you. Look into it for yourself because that is definitely something you should not easily get over. Well, verse 21 tells us not only did He inaugurate that new way, but He is the minister of it. He says, since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, the idea of the priesthood has been brought up in a number of occasions in, in, uh, in the book of Hebrews already. Um, and, and basically, starting in chapter 7, and particularly in chapter 7, he says he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Man, we can't even get into all that stuff concerning Melchizedek's priesthood. But it is to say that Christ is superior than any human priesthood for a number of reasons. Because he is a priest forever. You know, the high priest always died, and then, you know, you were hoping that the next guy would be pretty decent. Right? But Jesus Christ is a high priest forever. His ministry is permanent. It doesn't stop. In fact, He Himself never rests from His ministry. He is constantly that ministering high priest. Um, his, his propitiation or the sacrifice is complete and eternal. Whereas they kept killing animals year after year after year. That's the argument in Hebrews chapter 10 earlier, right? He says the blood of bulls and goats they could never finally cleanse. If they could cleanse, why would they keep offering them? But we can be cleansed. And He has a better covenant. I mean, all of these things tell us that He is a better priest and He is that advocate for us. It reminds us that we have in Jesus Christ access unto the holy place as well as His constant ministry to us. Why should you and I be courageous in life? You know, I... I grew up thinking about superheroes, you know, and uh, um, um, I love comic books. I, I used to, you know, I could share about all these things, and sometimes I'll sit around with some of the younger guys in our congregation, and they'll say, oh, yeah, you remember when so-and-so did that? I go, no, no, 
young man, you know, I'm, I'm old enough now, I can, you know, refer to them as youngsters. Young man, if you knew the history of Superman, you wouldn't speak of it, talking about silly things like that. But, but man, you know, I think you would be pretty bold if you had the powers of Superman. I used to wish I had Superman's powers, right? Why? Because the beauty of Superman is that he's literally indestructible. And then, yeah, they made up, like, freaky stuff, like, you know, first there's green kryptonite, then there's blue kryptonite and red kryptonite, all oh, this. It's just they're making stuff up to try to make him more vulnerable, right? Otherwise, he's invulnerable. So can you imagine the courage that you would have to walk into, you know, a hail of bullets and it's like, oh, whatever, ding, 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 ding. You're like, come on, stop, stop, right? I'll give you a little heat bit of, you know, blast this. Right? It would be excellent. Well, you know, that's fun and that's exciting, but you know what? You have something greater than that. My problem, your problem, is that we don't believe it. Access to the holy place, who gets to do that? You and I do. Because that is sick that we take such a wondrous reality for granted and we forget what it means that we have access unto the living God. Should that build in us a confidence? Yeah, confidence for anything. For life, for death, for pain, for torture, for anything. Uh, this is one missionary, they call him the king of the cannibals. I don't know if you guys read that. That's a pretty good book. Um, one of the guys has been reading and sharing some of his insights from that. But um, it, he, there's a point where um, this missionary, I forget his first name, something Peyton, and he, uh, um, he wants to go minister to these cannibals and people tell him, hey, but they might, they might eat your flesh, right? Think about that. And he goes, he goes well, what does it matter? If the worms eat me or if they eat me, isn't the point that I might live for a moment to, uh, to serve the glory of our majesty, right? To do that what is worth doing with our lives. And guys, if there is not enough courage that is built up from the reality of our New Testament relationship with the living God, I cannot encourage you in any other way. This is the greatest form. And that's why he goes to this. As an author of Hebrews is saying, well, since then, we have such access. Since then, we have such a great priest. Then let us proceed. The world is before us. And whatever the Lord desires for us to accomplish, it will be done. So then from that, he gives us three exhortations. And we'll look at those very quickly here. If it is true that we can be that courageous and that confident... Then verse 22 says, Then let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's a lot said there, but in the, in the, in the, in the statement or the exhortation that's given to us, it's fairly simple. He says, If this is true, that we have such access to God and we have such an advocate as Jesus Christ, he says, Then let us draw near. Let us draw near. Now, it's not an imperative in, in the tense of the verb, uh, in the way that the verb is given to us. The idea is that it is a call, kind of a call to us to join in in this thing. In other words, it's almost like he's cheering us on to this. He's saying, come on, let's draw near. It might seem like an odd thing to do, to call these individuals to draw near, but isn't that not the very privilege we have as Christians? We might actually draw near. 
And can I convince you of that? That in the drawing near to God, you have everything that you actually desire in life. You know, sometimes we live um, our lives um, in the pursuit of good things, of sanctification, almost to an extreme. You know, there'll be moments where we might think to ourselves, well, I am I'm seeking to eradicate sin. And I'm just, that's, Holiness and sanctification is about me being separate from sin, separate from sin, separate from sin. Well, what do you do when you die and you go into the presence of God? I mean, I'm being facetious in the sense that we're all going to be right. We're all going to think right. Our theology will be right when we're in the presence of God. But when we are there, it's not about eradicating sin in ourselves anymore. It's about the delight of drawing near to Him. Right? I, I just imagine, and I had this wonderful discussion just last night with one of the brothers... And we're talking about this. Can you imagine going to heaven, you know, and, and sitting in, in the presence of God, right? In the new heavens and the new earth, where God sits upon the throne and the glory of Him just kind of fills everything so that there's no night. It's always shining. It's always brilliant. It's always... And then here you are, and you're with your brother, and you're like, man, we're here. And he looks to you and he goes, yeah, too bad I don't have to, you know, fight sin anymore. And you, and you know, what is wrong with you? Look around. We are near His presence. Can we desire anything more? This is the fulfillment. And so when He encourages us to draw near, it almost seems like, why would you need to tell us that? Well, He's telling us that because in our human condition, as we still struggle with this flesh, we forget that that is our singular privilege. And that is the very purpose to which you live to draw near to the very glory of our living Savior. He says, let us draw near then. He's talking about the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. So let us draw near then with a sincere heart. It means with a true heart. That there's nothing hidden, nothing separate, nothing... We- I mean, we are truthful in our heart and with full assurance of faith. With confidence in what we believe, as well as in, with genuine conviction and true and right conviction, he says, let us draw near. Right? Let us come near the very throne of God. There is beauty in coming close to our living God and our Heavenly Father. I like what J.I. Packer says about the fact that we can call Him Father. He says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the, th- if it, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father, quote, is the Christian name for God. That's the access that we have to Him. A true heart, right? That allows us to go into the presence of God. Um, A clean heart, it says, a sprinkled heart. Heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, bodies washed in pure water. You know, the verbs are given to us in the, in the perfect tense. And you guys, you guys know what that is, right? That is this idea that something has been accomplished and remains so. The perfective idea of a verb is the idea that, that if you say that, I give it to you, you know, our English is so terrible, we just have, you know, past, present, future, right? But if we say it like, you know, I, I hit the ball, right? That's kind of a perfective idea. I'm telling you, you know, like, man, I went up to the plate, I got it. I hit that ball, right? That's done. And it almost implies that it's still flying. 
Because man did I hit that ball, right? And that's the idea of the perfect. It's this idea that it is completely done. And in that, we have, we have hearts that have, have been sprinkled. He's not saying sprinkle your hearts clean. Because that sacrifice is done. Again, it goes back to that sacrifice where bloods of animals would flow and the priests would go and sprinkle all day. So long as it was daytime, they would be killing animals um, on the Day of Atonement. And uh, it would be this, this horrifying crimson flow that flowed out into the, to the, to the Kidron Valley. And it would just be endless. And I can't imagine the smell. I can't imagine the sight of it. I mean, your entire senses were overloaded with the idea of death and dying. And he's saying, but you, today, your hearts have been fully accomplished, sprinkled. Right? And, you, and it tells us it has been sprinkled from what? From an evil conscience. There are many things that that means, but one particular that is so significant for us. We are not slaves to guilt. Having been sprinkled clean... We don't just walk around and go, woe is me, I'm a terrible person, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible, I, I hate myself, right? You know, that is the, the worst form of pride that we encourage in ourselves. This idea of debasing ourselves to try to earn something with God, you know? It's, it's the kid that says, you know, plays piano, and then you go, hey, you're pretty good. No, I'm terrible. But in his heart, he's going, how good am I, right? <laughs> Speak to me, my brother, right? That's us. And we do that sometimes in our attitude of our sanctification. Lord, I will sacrifice for you. Why? Because God needs that? You know? Lord, I'm giving big bucks into this offering plate. Because you need it. He owns everything, man. He doesn't need anything from us. That's so ridiculous. We can be sprinkled clean and we have been sprinkled clean from the evil conscience because of the freedoms that we have to experience the fullness of God. Guys, get over the legalistic tendency as Christians. And, you know, and I speak to you because we, as Bible-believing Christians, are more prone right, to that tendency of trying to smuggle in our own virtue every time we talk about sanctification. And we need to go to Galatians 3 and get rebuked and be called the morons right, that are, that are called there. And we need to be reminded again and again that, you know, it is not your virtue that makes you more sanctified. You have been sprinkled clean. Your hearts are already true. Right? Your bodies have already been washed. Declaration of the benefit of, um, of, uh, uh, um, of the realities that, uh, um, that baptism refers to. Not the baptism itself. But that our bodies are washed in the sense that what baptism represents. We're dead to sin. We're alive to the Lord. And if those things are true, it is a call for us then to draw near to the living God. You know, we can do so many things well in our Christian lives. We might memorize verses. We might know doctrine. We might know... And if we are not drawing near to God, you have missed the point of the confident access that Jesus Christ has given to you. I mean, that is everything. What do you want? A religious experience? Man, you can find that amongst the Mormons. Right? What do you want? To live an exceptionally good and moral life? Mormons again, right? Or maybe Muslims? And we can go on and... Do you want the nearness of God, which is your good? Then come on! He's saying, draw near! What hinders you? Except for your own flesh. Let Let me dwell on this point a second more. 
Um, F.B. Meyer, and uh, if you guys ever heard the name F.B. Meyer, he's a, a scholar of the past generations, and, and he's written a number of things that exist in various languages, some of his uh, sermons. He's a pretty cool guy. And I never knew, but I read the, uh, recently, and I think in How to Worship Jesus Christ by Joseph Carey. Great book. Read that if you have a chance. F.B. Meyer tells uh, how he encountered... I'm throwing all these names out like, I, like they're my buddies. I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, but he encountered C.T. Studd, right? That's a good name, by the way, right? C.T. Studd. And he was a stud. Uh, he, he was considered at the time the greatest cricket player in all of England. That would be the equivalent of being Babe Ruth here. I mean, the greatest baseball player. That's what he, and he left that to go into the mission field. And in this one in particular instance, he was preaching, and F.B. Meyer said that it wasn't so much what he had to say, but the conviction of his heart. And he went up to him, and he said, very, he went up to him and said, um, says, it is clear that you have something that I lack, something that I need. What is it? Right? And C.T. Studd, in his very forthright manner, looked him straight in the eye and asked, have you surrendered everything to Jesus Christ? Right? F.P. Meyer says, uh, I thought a moment and said, yes, I have. But a small voice within me said, no, you haven't. And he said he goes home that, that night. He rushes home to fall down in prayer because he knows something's not right. And he seeks the Lord about this. And he imagines it this way. He says, it's as if Jesus had come into his heart and said, give me the keys to your heart. And F.P. Meyer says, here you go, Lord. And the Lord begins to count them off. And then as he's doing that, he's thinking to himself, He's going to know that one is missing, right? And then the Lord says, you know, there's, there's one missing here. And he's thinking to himself, it's a very small key, Lord. It's a very small idolatry, a very small thing hidden in my heart. It's not necessary for you to worry about that. You've got 99.9% of, of what you need here, right? And, and the Lord says, if I'm not Lord of all, I am not Lord at all. And so the Lord's about to leave and he goes, no, no, wait, 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 wait. And he tries to bargain with him. And eventually, he, he, in desperation, before the Lord could leave, he gives him that singular small key. And he says his life took on a brand new perspective from then on. Guys, I realize when I ask you to look at this portion of Scripture and tell you, let us draw near, that that is possibly one of the most boring kind of ideas that may have been presented from this pulpit. I know James... He knows how to bring the word, right? And with, with some sense of courage and excitement to you. And I probably have, you probably are like underwhelmed by the sinful thought of, really? So, so you're asking me to kind of get close to God? Feels good. Thanks, man. Thanks. Don't come again. You know, we'll see you another seven, eight years, nine years, whatever. <laughs> right? But what I'm suggesting to you that there is not a greater purpose that you serve in this life. And then all the other great purposes of the evangelization of the world, of trying to bring the glorious gospel to the other edges, that is just an extrapolation of this. I'm not asking you to draw near in selfishness. And we're going to find out because the other two, especially the last one, doesn't let us be selfish with this thing. I'm saying this is the singular focus of our design and desire. If you do not desire the nearness of God, how can, you, how can you really call yourself a Christian? And what is it that you really desire from your Christian faith? A religious experience? A way to be better than other people? Um, we fall into that, right? This comparative idea, as long as I'm better than some, then that's best. Um, Becca and I, my daughter, we had a wonderful discussion of many very important topics. One of which was whether or not I had the ability to sing Do, Re, Mi backwards. 
You know, so we're saying do re mi fa so la ti, do, and then I try to do it backwards, do ti, la ti. I can't even do that, right? And, and and she was saying, wow, I'm better than you at that. And it's like, well, clearly so. Hey, you know, and that's us. I mean, you know, from a young age, I mean, we all seek to be better than somebody at something. Maybe at this Christian thing. And I'm saying, that is foolishness. You want to be better at something? It may be basketball or how to count to ten. I don't, find something, but do not talk about spiritual things like you are better than your brother than your sister in the Lord. Let us together draw near. Because that is what we exist for. Let's look at the next one. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast. Why is this important? Well, through the, through the epistle of Hebrews, we find that they are under severe persecution. Probably not the Neronian persecution yet, but soon to come. And so, the persecution that is upon them, he is trying to hold out for them, and he's saying, let us hold. Right? So, this is our second exhortation here, to use our courage in the nearness of Christ and God, which is our good, to hold fast the confession of our hope. Now, as soon as I confession of our hope, isn't that a curious thing? You and I, when we read this, you would expect, if I say confession of, you would say faith. And if you wouldn't have said faith, just pretend you would have said faith so that I don't speak a lie, right? Confession of faith. Because in other words, what is the embodiment of the doctrine, the, the theology, the scriptures, the things that we hold fast to? Can you speak them to me, my brother? That's not what he's asking to hold fast to. Is that important? Of course. And we find that throughout the scriptures that we need to hold fast to, to the teaching of Christ. But here he says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hope is a very significant thing. Especially for those that are under such severe persecution that they may very well die. Can you, it is my heart's desire to take care of my wife and my children. Can you imagine living in a time of persecution where that was not a guarantee? How difficult would that be for, for me, for you as a father, as a, as a Christian? How difficult would it be for you as a, as, a, as, as a parent to know that your children might suffer right, and die for their faith? Man, that, that is tough. Sometimes it's easy for us to have faith for ourselves. You know? If the Lord says, hey, I want you to go to these people. I want you to preach. They'll reject you and they'll kill you. You might go, what? Oh, okay. Right? Because, it's, I mean, there is still glory to be had in seeking uh, unto the point of death. It is so much more difficult to have faith for those that you love. Right? This is happening. Look around you. Look at the brothers and sisters that you love gathered here. Can you imagine if a third of them would be killed this week? You're not sure what third? And you feel the shame of, of fearing that it might be you? You know, you're going through all of this. And what is... He says, we get to draw near to our living God. So then hold fast to hope. Because our hope, Christian hope, it is certain. He who promised is faithful. You know, there was a study done by a professor, Marston, in NYU. He uh, surveyed 3,000 people and he asked them this question. What, what have you to live for? He was shocked at the result. That 94% of these 3,000, and I cannot even calculate that in my head for you right off the top of my head. I usually can. No, I can't. I'm terrible at math. 94%. That is a lot of people, right? 
<laughs> I don't know exactly how many, but that's a ton, that's a ton of people out of the 3,000 surveyed, said that they were simply enduring the, enduring the present while waiting for something in the future. They said things like that they were waiting for literally, quote-unquote, something to happen. Or they're waiting for, quote-unquote, next year. They're waiting for a better time, waiting for someone to die. I have no idea who would put and why they would put that. And then they're waiting for tomorrow. Right? Do you guys realize that, that the Christian concept of hope is so different from the world's concept of hope? Uh, in, in, in fact, in, to many degrees, it's the exact opposite. Donald Guthrie, uh, in uh, this particular portion of the pastoral epistles, he says that the word hope in the Greek, elpis, used in a Christian sense, conveys an element of absolute certainty, an element generally lacking in the modern usage of the word. If you talk to somebody on the street and you talk about hope, what are they talking about? Well, they're hoping to win the lottery. But they're hoping that... All of a sudden, they'll, they'll shed their 80 pounds you know, they need to lose. Or they're hoping that they might accidentally stumble across you know, something incredible, remarkable. You know, they're looking for some distant and vague hope. Right? There's not anything substantial or true. It's just kind of distant. It's vague. They're hoping that for the most part, something good will happen, etc. And there's a vagueness to it, an emptiness to it, because it is not certain. That's how we use the concept of hope. And that's what the world is doing. Sitting around waiting, right, for something exciting to happen. Hoping for something good. What is the Christian's experience? Oh man, we know that hope is certain. Absolutely. Places like Romans 5, you know, 5, 3 to 5, and then let me just read you 4 and 4 to 5. It says, you know, it talks about how we rejoice in sufferings because it produces endurance, and endurance produces. Proven character, and proven character produces hope. And verse 5 says, and hope does not put us to shame. In other words, it doesn't disappoint us. Because that hope is genuine, and it says, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through His Holy Spirit. Hope never fails the Christian, right? Colossians 1, 5 says, because there's a hope laid up for you in heaven. Is our hope certain? As certain as heaven is. Right? And Colossians 1, uh, 27 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of His mystery, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is our hope certain? In the Scriptures, absolutely. We are not the world floundering around, waiting and hoping that something bad doesn't happen to us, hoping that something good might eventually happen to us. We are those that know that our hope is certain. The only question for us is how long we have to wait. It's like having a prize and knowing that that's a guarantee. The glory of God's presence is a guarantee to us. The only question is how long do I remain on on earth, right? And for what purpose do I serve? I don't know if you guys know, um, I have some health issues. Um, I have hepatitis B passed on from... Uh, from my parents to myself, and uh, for I think I think the doc was saying something like 98% of people uh, infected with hepatitis B, um, it's not a big deal. But there's that small percentage of people who it affects their liver and affects my liver. I take a med, I'm fine. But it has been an excellent reminder to me that save for the grace of God, I don't. God doesn't owe me an extra day, right? Doesn't owe me anything extra. And at the same time, the confidence to realize I am immortal until my work, as He has ordained it, is complete. Right? 
I mean, my work might be done tonight. <laughs> Who knows? But whatever that day is, that's when I'll go. Not before and not after. There is confidence in the hope that we have. There is courage to know that God knows what in the world He's doing, even if you don't. Right? Our hope is certain. And He says, let us hold fast. It's a military term. Dig in your heels. Take what comes to know that it's right. For He who promised is faithful. Let me give you the last one. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I, I said on there that the, that the concept here is encouragement, which it is. But the very clear command is that we would consider. In other words, here is a call for us to exercise our minds. right? Um, to make it a consideration of our hearts. Or may I say it this way, that we ought to meditate upon these things. And what is it, in all of these, all three of these let us, you know, these uh, exhortations, let us, um, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider, these are all in the present tense. In other words, they are something that we are to renew in ourselves on a consistent basis. And he's saying, then let us constantly consider to use our minds and how we might stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Again, the drawing near, the access to God, the, the, the goodness of the new covenant is not for our, us and for our selfish enjoyment alone. It is for us to consider how we might stimulate one another. You know, the term for stimulate is a great one. It, uh, it, ought, it could easily be translated provoke. Can you imagine that on the list of one another's? Love one another. Oh, forgive one another. Encourage one another. And provoke one another, right? If we said it that way, it would probably be sinful. And, and the word can be used in the method of things that are sinful. Um, in one particular instance I can think of in Acts 15, there was a sharp disagreement. No, provocation, same word, right? Between Paul and Barnabas over the faithfulness of John Mark. It was sharp enough that they actually divided and went different ways in terms of ministry, right? Um, provocation. And it's saying, we ought to creatively meditate upon how can I provoke you? Not to anger or to sin, but to love and good deeds. And at first you might think, hey, how, how odd is that? That, um, that the command is not to provoke each other away from sin. In other words, you know, I think when we interact with each other, at least to some degree, we would think, shouldn't there be some exhortation about how we ought to provoke each other unto holiness and sanctification? That I ought to call out my brother and I ought to exhort him concerning sin. You know, should I not, you know, seek to, you know, to make sure that the, uh, that the, that the reign of Satan is not on my brother's heart? You know, I, I'm trying to, you know, ferret out any kind of sin in him. No, the command is for us to use our mental capacity to the best of God's glory in a very particular avenue. And that's not to say that sin is not dealt with. Just in the next verse after the ones we're looking at, it says if you go on sinning willfully, hey, there is no, you know, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Pretty intense, right? But here he's talking about this is what the confident Christian, courageous and bold, the heroes of faith do. They draw near to God as we should. They hold fast to hope because hope is certain. And here, they consider how they can provoke each other to love and to good deeds, to noble works. Right? How can we, how can we diligently prod each other towards those things that are excellent and right? 
And those things, if you go, yeah, well, how can I do that? It gives us the, the rest of it in the context of, of the church. It says negatively speaking, and notice that it's the participle, not forsaking our assembly. Frequently, when you have an exhortation or command, especially in, in the Pauline epistles, if there's a command, do this, and then there's participles, that's the manner or the realm in which you do it. And if he's saying, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, he's saying it ought to happen in the assembling of the saints. Not forsaking our assembly as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. That great and excellent and at the same time horrifying day of the Lord, that great eschatological, the end day, as that day draws near, he's saying, let us consider how to prod one another, to love each other more, to have noble deeds, to do good. Right? It's a beautiful statement. And it can't happen outside the context of the church. Um, I trust that you love your church. You ought to. These are your brothers and sisters. You know, we, we call it our band of brothers. That term is a great one. In fact, uh, it's, it's, it's my personal favorite. You know, that, uh, that the speech that Henry gives in uh, um, the, the St. Crispin Day speech where that term band of brothers comes, if I had, you know, a hundred minutes, I would have shared that with you as well. Uh, but that's one of my favorite speeches because it stirs you. Because he, he basically says, you know what? Back in England, and then historically speaking, he was surrounded, he was cut off, they needed to win, and over, there's overwhelming numbers against him. They needed to win this battle to cross this river to get to the bay so they could actually go home. And that was all doubtful. And back at home, with St. Crispin's Day is a holiday, Right? And he's saying, you know, I don't covet, you know, riches. I don't covet fame. And he goes, but I do covet, right, the honor, the honor of victory. And he goes on to give this huge, wonderful speech about how back there, the gentlemen are sleeping today. They're taking in St. Christmas Day. And they will regret that they are not here with us in the front lines. They would look back and say, I wish I was with them on St. Christmas Day. And he encourages his soldiers, and historically speaking, it's, it's a means by which they actually won an overwhelming odds battle. And they were able to return home. And they all celebrated that. But for us, the band of brothers means something much deeper. The assembling together of the saints. You look eye to eye with that individual who would die for your Savior. Just as you would die for your Savior. I say it's difficult to trust in another in their faith. But their faith is your faith. Their hope is your hope. The same God that they draw near to, you draw near to. And when you look at them that way, well, how, what should you use your mind for? You say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a teacher. I'm not. Fine. How can you use your mind to cause, to prod, to probe, to encourage, to push your fellow believer to love God more? to love the saints more, to be men and women of love and good and excellent noble deeds. How can you do that? And you say, well, I don't know. Well, then that's the command, right? Think about those things. If you're sitting there just absorbing like a sponge, you're not, God hasn't saved you so you can just absorb and be a sponge. There's a purpose in the confidence that we have in the drawing near to God. I have said it more than a mouthful, and I've probably gone a lot longer than I should. But let me, let me just give you this, this thought. It comes back um, to what it means that we are New Covenant believers. 
You know, um, yeah, I was thankful for um, our sister uh, Monica sharing her testimony. I love to hear the testimony of the saints. Not because they're so exciting or new. You know, some guys have crazy exciting, you know, I almost died kind of testimonies. Some guys have, you know, I grew up in the church, you know, and I'm not sure exactly when that day was. It wasn't. I didn't throw a pine cone in the fire or come forward. Because in in it reminds me of my own. I had grown up in the church. And I have thrown pine cones in the fire, quite a, quite a few. Uh, in fact, I grew up in a good Baptist church, which meant that I came forward two times a week. You know? <laughs> These guys, back, Baptist background, you know with an amen what I'm talking about, right? Because they're always preaching, and they're, in the summer times, they would show, you know, the rock that steals your soul. You know, you know that? They, they play, you know, all this rock music backwards, and it's like, sound like, yo, yo, yo. And they go, did you hear that? And I go, whoa, 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 what was it? They go, they said Satan is Lord. They did? It sounded like, yo, whoa, whoa, yo, whoa, whoa. They said, but Satan is Lord. And I go, oh, dude, I'm never going to listen to that again. Right? At least not that song. <laughs> and I come forward and I say, oh, Lord, forgive me and, and save me from the rock that will steal my soul. They would show those, those great old movies, you know, the, uh, the tribulation movies, You've Been Left Behind. And they sing that song, Ding, you've been left behind. Oh, dude, I don't want to be left behind. And I'll come forward. That'd be the same Sunday, man. You know? I would be coming forward over and over and over again. And, um, and you know, the sad thing is in all of that experience, I was not a believer at all. It is possible for us to major on the minors. And I'm encouraging you, it's not exciting not invigorating. It's not something brand new and fresh. Probably old school. But I'm encouraging you to understand what it means that we have been drawn near to God. That we have access to Him. That by His death, that we might know life. Guys, if you have gotten over that reality of your salvation, that is a prideful sin I can do nothing about. But take that to the Lord. Take that to the Lord and let the Holy Spirit wash your conscience about such things. You are not deserving of anything and yet you have received everything. Take advantage. Take advantage not for yourself but for all those that are gathered here and for all those that call upon the name of the Lord that we might together draw near, hold fast and consider how to prod each other on because that's the access we have in Him. Let us praise the Lord with our lives. Close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to You and we thank You because um, there's so many more things that could be said about this excellent portion of Your Holy Word. But let us suffice for our hearts, Lord, that we ought to know better that, um, that the inconsistent heart, um, the heart that is, that is fearful, it's because we don't appreciate how near You are. Um, that if we are not participating... In the, in the gospel and, and in the pursuit of love, in the pursuit of uh, extending the glory of Jesus Christ, Lord, then it is because we do not appreciate who you are and what you have done. And in all of these things, Lord, teach us indeed to draw near, to, to stimulate, to, to encourage one another, Lord, to know the reality of the life transformation, the joy that it is to desire God. May we settle for nothing less in the full experience of Jesus Christ for our salvation and the joy of looking forward with a certain hope to see His glory. We thank You for Your love and we ask that uh, You would encourage our hearts by the power of Your Holy Spirit 
to make this fruitful, to live lives that live in anticipation of your coming and take great delight in the position we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.